If I like something, I really have to explain why I like it. And more than that, I have to explain what it is and what it does. Uh, so there's a lot of responsibility to it. In addition to which, um, you're dealing with people's careers. And so there is a kind of a social, I'm not a sociopath, I'm not about to destroy stuff. I'm really there to understand things and to evaluate things. Hello and welcome to Architecture, Design and Photography. Today, I'm very excited to speak with Joseph Giovannini. Joseph Giovannini has served as the architecture critic for New York Magazine and the Los Angeles Herald Examiner and was a longtime staff writer on design and architecture for The New Yorker, Architectural Record, Architectural Digest, Art in America, Art Forum, Architecture Magazine, Architect Magazine, Industrial Design Magazine, and Interior Design. A prominent figure in American architecture, he has been an activist, critic, and a record record of discovering emerging talent for major mainstream publications and professional journals. He coined the term deconstructivism during articles he wrote announcing the movement. Joe Vanini has written literally thousands of articles for periodicals, and he has also authored numerous essays for books and monographs. As a critic, he has won awards, grants, and honors. So this guy has critically thought about things that are intentionally going outside the established norm, the avant-garde, the disruptive. And to be able to do that, it's like you've got to get ahead of where they're going in a way to be able to critique what they're doing, which means that this guy's very forward thinking, very thought out, a very good writer and very good perceptor and thinker. If that's, you know, there's a better word for that, I'm sure, but I'm not finding it. So, um, very interesting conversation for me, and it was really great talking to him. I think you'll enjoy it as well. Give it up for Joseph Giovannini. Joseph Giovannini, uh, welcome to Architecture, Design, and Photography. I really, really appreciate you taking the time and holding in there with us and figuring out all the technical difficulties. If nothing else, you're very persistent and I appreciate that. So uh, I am extremely uh, interested in being able to get some of your time and to figure out how your mind works and how your experience has gotten you to the place that you're at um, as an architectural critic. Um, you've uh, worked as an architectural critic and an architectural journalist for quite some time and you've produced a book that is massive. You, you have to strain when you pick it up, it's so big. And it's, it's really, really interesting to look through. And I also love that there's a little hidden gem as far as like, if you actually pay attention to this book, it's a little avant-garde in its own, um, in its own build. Uh, the, the angle is a little uh, acute or obtuse, I forget which one exactly. But as you open the pages, you realize the, uh, the book itself leaves traditional forms behind and, and goes a little crazy there, which is kind of kind of a little Easter egg. Um, so with your background, it, it seems that your, uh, your value is in your abilities of critical perception of experience critical thinking and communication through written word. I'm deeply interested in your ability of critical perception and critical, critical thinking process 
and want to know how you work through this process. I think I should say from the very beginning that I'm trained as an architect. Mm -hmm. So it gives me a very particular perspective on the architecture of other people. Yeah, uh, that's, that's something we have in common there. Yeah. And then um, on top of that, I'm, I was an English major at Yale and I did a master's in French in, in Paris. Um, and so I um, am trained to think through uh, a thought logically and to write it and to write it down. So I have training in sort of both arenas as my eye in architecture and my mind in terms of, of uh, formulating thoughts. Interesting. Um, I, I, I should also say that I enjoy writing a great deal. Uh, I, it's not that I always did, but I'm, I'm at a level where I can kind of plane and um, create a sentence that gives me some pleasure in its composition. Uh, so uh, besides the critical acumen I might bring to the table, there is a kind of the, a tool of writing as well as the tool of architecture. So it's a compounded um, expertise. Yeah, the, the tool of writing is something that I uh, play around with as a hobby, but I find that it gives me a huge amount of clarity once I've worked through it. It's, it's a very valuable process that after you articulate something from a subjective experience into a articulated sentence or paragraph or, you know, article or book, uh, the interesting thing you find is that in many ways, that experience that you write from, you no longer hold it emotionally, but that you reference it in an art in a more articulate manner. And you can, you can reference, think to, and rationally pull uh, meaning, contradictions, and, and things out of that experience that I found after you've been able to articulate it. Well, I, I think articulating it uh, also allows you to understand what you think uh, because you don't, don't necessarily understand it until the articulation. So it's, it's mm. a tool of understanding as well. Frequently, the understanding emerges in, in the writing. I just finished a piece for the New York Times, and, and um, I didn't, uh, in, until after I submitted it, did I actually realize that I had uh, not really finished the point. And so I went back into the piece, and my editor accepted the addition that um, made a huge difference in the piece itself. So it's not as though you understand it completely in one fell swoop. The understanding is emergent. Hmm. So explain to me your your process of understanding what you think, because I've had this struggle of I know what I feel, but I don't necessarily know what I think. And now there's this next level of now I need to understand what I think. How do you how do you work through that whole process personally? Well, it's not linear. Um, you have to understand that with a building frequently, if, if it happens to be a building that's in my orbit, I've, I've probably seen it for a couple of years because it's under construction and I might have been um, uh, in contact with the architect to, in terms of the drawings and the planning and all that. So um, I've written about a number of buildings that uh, have been um, gestating in my mind for, for a very long time. And frequently my opinions change, uh, my emotions change uh, 
um, uh, because things, uh, a friend of mine wrote a book about art placement and, and her thesis was that depending on the placement of work of art like the Victory Samoth race, you see it very differently in different contexts. And um, uh, the, uh, uh, in terms of your mind's eye, depending on how you're feeling, um, uh, you know, whether you've had your coffee, whether you're braced, whether you're kind of, um, uh, kind of slow that, that morning, you, th you think about things differently at different, at different points, but you see things differently in different contexts and you think about things differently. When I read the same book that I've read, read maybe two years ago, I'm a different person. And so, mm. so it's, it's really a dynamic. It's a, it's a thought dynamic, it's a visual dynamic, and certainly it's an experience dynamic as well. Interesting. So you as an architectural critic, what is your process of approaching a designed, built project that you kind of onload that into your subjective experience and translate that into a critique of that work? Like, how does that process work for you? Well, there are a number of layers. I mean, one is the historical layer. One is so that so that I'm I'm extremely well traveled. I'm, I'm very architecturally literate, so I can put it in a historical context. Hmm. Um, there is also my the context of my own writing as to whether I've written about this, this architect before or seen other comparable buildings. There's the context of since I'm an architect, I mean, occasionally when I really have to slam a building because I think it's awful, uh, I sit down at the, at the uh, at my drafting table and I think, well, okay, I'm going to see if I can produce a better scheme myself as an architect, and so I kind of can check the, uh, the quality of the scheme against my own kind of expertise, and if I think I can do better, then then I I have a better um, grounding in um, assessing the quality of the building. I don't always do that, but, but if I'm particularly disturbed um, at a building and I, I want to be fair to the architect, and so I kind of test it against other schemes that I can develop, um, you know, spend a, you know, a short amount of time on it. So mm -hmm. there, there are a lot of levels to it, and, and those levels are also dynamic within them. Um, and also, if I'm thinking about it over a period of time, then there's an additional time dynamism. That so it's it's, um, it's always it's really quite in flux. I I, um, uh, I do I come down on the same opinion twice over a period of time? Yes, um, but there would be nuanced changes. It's, it's a, there's, there's no hard rule for it. It's mm -hmm. complex. So. So how does one get to a point of actually being an architectural critic? There, there's no degree that you can get in school to specifically say, I've come out and I'm going to be a critic. It, it seems like you have these two uh, educational backgrounds that simply created the environment for, for a person to be able to uh, understand process, but then turn that into an articulate written form. Is that... Is that a, a fair assessment of how you've gotten into that? Well, I think, well there, there's one's native um, predispositions and then there's just the accidentalism of, of careers. Um, mm -hmm. uh, I was always at, I went to architecture school at Harvard and, and I was kind of the class um, uh, writer. And if we, <laughs> if we wrote, 
petitions against the faculty, which at that time we thought was mediocre. I was the one who was deputized to um, to to write, and as as a result, I got became um, the victim of the faculty, which didn't like the student um, uh, opposition, and so my scholarship was was um, stripped. Although I wasn't oh. plucked out like some of my other, uh, so I had years of of uh, uh, student loan as a result of pay for my talents as a writer in this particular class. Oh. Anyway, yes, I, I like to think and I, I, I like to think and I like to talk about what I think. Um, but uh, and so there's a natural predisposition which was cultivated by, you know, four years, at, five years at Yale uh, as an English major and then another year Paris uh, 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 doing a master's in French, um, which gave me another level of expertise because because of my French, I was able to read the French philosophes, uh, the contemporary philosophes who, who are basically post-structuralists. And so, so, um, so I would say that uh, I have a multiple grounding. Uh, that said, you know, I could have just been a happy-go-lucky architect um, blathering to my friends a lot, uh, except that when I was, when I first started um, out as an architect, I was living in Venice, California, and um, I chanced on uh, a, I walked through a gallery that a friend of mine owned and she introduced me to um, a reporter from the Herald Examiner. Uh, and so uh, Lainey said, uh, Joseph, this is Camilla Snyder who is doing an article for the Herald. Um, she's a reporter. And, and uh, uh, Camilla, this is Joseph Giovannini, he's an architect. Um, and Camilla turns to me and she said, well, how would you like to write the architecture criticism for the Herald Examiner? So that's where the, you know, the point of contact was made between my career uh, as a critic and um, my careers as an English literature person and uh, my career as an architect. So it was a pure accident. Um, uh, and I said in response, well, yes, that would interest me because I had in fact just written the introduction to what became a book called The Los Angeles at 25 Miles an Hour. So, um, mm. so the Herald asked me for some writing submission. I had something and then they tried me out with somebody else who didn't work out, um, but I, I did work out. So the, um, the, the thing I didn't anticipate was that since I, I, my columns appeared once a week, I quickly became better known as an arc as a critic because buildings metabolize over a much longer period of time. Mm. Uh, so, uh, so when the phone rang, it was always to write another article or to write um, an introduction. Um, and so my career as a critic galloped away while my career as an architect kind of stalemated. So All when right. the phone rings now, it's still for criticism and it's not for architecture. Do you get a different uh, fulfillment, a different pleasure, a different thinking process when you're pr approaching something as a critic compared as a, as a creative force as far as making uh, a, a built project compared to uh, the creative but critical instinct of judging or critiquing a project. How how are how's the the hat or the mindset that you wear in those situations different? Well, they're comparable because when you're designing, you're also self criticizing, uh, mm -hmm. and it's it's not as though by divine afflatus you uh, a brilliant design lands 
on your desk. You know, it might be a, a brilliant concept and you have to work it out. And it's comparable with doing an article or, or a book. And, but of course, books and articles are very different. It's a whole different animal altogether. But it's the same, largely the same self-critical process. It's involved with thinking and ideas. It always starts with an idea. Um, uh, and um, and then uh, the ideas compound and you develop and, and the, the, it's no longer the same idea at the end as it was at the beginning. It's it's developed and nuanced. Um, but the, the um, if it turns out that there's a good solution either as an article or as a, um, a piece of design as a building, is 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 hugely gratifying, and there's a there's a gratification at reaching some sort of um, resolution. Hmm. Now, as you set out as a critic, is is there a temptation to be uh, solely critical in the in the pejorative kind of way of saying it? That there's always look to, or is there a desire in that? critic mindset to look at something and find simply what's wrong with it uh, as a means of being someone who's hard to impress and 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 naturally have more authority or like what is the attitude uh, and the emotional mindset when you approach a thing like that because my my well, idea of a critic comes from ratatouille uh, are you familiar with that uh, child's cartoon <laughs> I saw the movie. Yeah, and the the food critic in that is my like my only personal interaction with a critic to this point, right? Like if you want to say it that way. And it seems like an overly well, you know. Well, I uh I have a strong objection to people who simply say I like it something and I dislike it without supporting it. I think sure. a, a, a primary um, rule for a job of a critic is to explain. Mm -hmm. um, and the explanation also is a way of understanding it yourself or myself. Uh, so if I don't understand something, I really um, am loath to pronounce a yay or nay about something. You have to understand too that criticism is often mistaken as a negative critique. Um, it's much harder to write a positive critique and sound um, reasonable because you you end up sounding as though you're flattering. Um, mm -hmm. So you so um, to 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 give a very positive review to something actually as an uh, an onus to the critic, or at least it does to me, it's extremely um, easy to come down on something because uh, for, you know, for uh, all the uh, sort of homegrown critics you read on the internet, they, they just throw stuff out, easy to do, and self-elevating. Uh, you're always superior because you're showing how bad something is. Um, right. uh, and so I don't, um, if I like something, I really have to explain why I like it uh, and more than that, I have to explain what it is and what it does. Uh, so there's a lot of responsibility to it. In addition to which, um, you're dealing with people's careers. And 
and so there is a kind of a social, I'm not a sociopath, I'm not about to destroy stuff, I'm really there to understand things and to evaluate things. And some things are kind of gray, that mm -hmm. you come down on with a positive and a negative thing. And, and um, uh, uh, then if, if that's the case, you can't sound, you know, nebbish, you can't sound as though on the one hand, but on the other, that's, uh, you, know, you can be a weak critic as well for not having an opinion. Um, so I think the people like a strong argument, but they also like it very well written. I like to do uh, what I would call tender explosions in a piece, little surprises along the way that um, uh, uh, gratify the reader in terms of just the the pleasure of reading. Mm. So would it would it be correct for me to take away from that that a a talented critic would be someone who can articulate their subjective experience into an opinion and be able to explain that opinion in a clear enough manner to be able to actually transfer that experience to someone else who could then go and experience that same built environment and understand what you're saying, uh, both from the reading of it, but also find a cohesion in their experience uh, after reading what you've read that that rings true. Well, uh, uh, experience can be objective as well as sub subjective. Uh, okay. So it's not so it's not as though if one experiences something, one is just feeling it. One is also thinking it. Um, so I think from the very beginning, they're 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 both. Now I'm not not saying that scientific objectivity is um, uh, always possible, but it's certainly an ingredient in this. There are a lot of people um, who, a lot of critics who don't use the I, but they, because they're purporting to be an objective critic. Um, one critic I admire a great deal, um, who's unfortunately died, Herbert Mouchamp of the New York Times, he, would rather than pretending to to be a scientist and with in a white coat looking looking at a building, um, he would say, you know, hey, uh, I came to the city as a gay guy when I was a teenager, and it kind of unleashed me, it gave me a context in which I could become myself. And um, but the point is, he was saying from the outset, this is my identity, this is how I see the world. This is my filter, and um, therefore, um, you should understand that uh, my objectivity is, is to a certain extent subjective, subjected to my identity. So he goes mm -hmm. on from there. So I think that's a very honest way of going about it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and um, in my book, I did the same thing because I'm trained as an architect. I, I, uh, I do. Uh, work, uh, particularly lofts, and and there's a section maybe 20 pages into the book where I felt I, I do an autobiography. I say this is my background. Um, I studied this and I wrote that, and and um, uh, this is the history of the book, and 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 then on the last page, which is the spread, um, the graphic artist decided to put my design in. The the book, but the point is, this is who I am, this is how I see the work, um, and it's fairly congenial. I'm going to be a supporter of this work because I kind of believe in it in my own practice. This is who I am, this is how I see it. 
Now, I don't do that in articles if I'm writing something for the New York Times or Architectural Record. I'm not, I'm not showing my work, but um, I, I try to um, uh, be uh, ecumenical. Uh, you know, there's stuff that I write about that I would never design, but I appreciate um, because uh, in its own terms, it's, it's, it's very good, or maybe it mm. might be bad in its own terms, but I, I don't, um, uh, I, I try to think of it as um, independent of my own um, proclivities. So uh, I'd, I'd be interested in understanding uh, your, uh, what you have as a foundational belief system that you stand on to then form opinions and and determine uh, for for your own experience what is good and bad from the foundation on up to everything is there a is there a foundational belief system that that you have of our reality that informs your opinion uh, around these issues of design and art and everything? Oh, that's an interesting question, foundational. Um, there are, uh, I have a belief system, um, but I don't necessarily judge buildings by my own belief system, but let me tell you about my belief system. I, I believe in open form, open experience. I don't believe in boxes. I don't believe in symmetries um, and and you can make that into a political analogy. I think that if you're in a highly hierarchical um, and overly ordered environment that it really um, directs you. It tells you how to think, how to behave, how to how to exist in a space. Mm -hmm. So what I'd like to do is to, to um, mm -hmm. enable the the uh, the person to um, uh, kind of give uh, agency to uh, somebody's experience so that uh, people, rather than being told how to go through a building, um, how to experience it, uh, can uh, actually be intrigued through one's curiosity to discover it uh, so that the building in some way actualizes the, the senses and the, the, the mind and um, experience of, 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 the, um, of the person. I was in a... Um, of the person experiencing the building. So experiences, um, I, I like to give experience to uh, a, um, a user rather than telling a, a user what the experience should be. Um, mm. There's a building, uh, there's a building that I wrote about in a couple of places in the book. Uh, the, um, uh, it's the cultural center in Azerbaijan, um, in Baku in Azerbaijan. And um, uh, I, uh, I compare it to a government building that was built during the Stalinist period, which is the four poster building within, and it's a layered building, it's layered cake, it's about seven or eight stories, within which on the facade, there are all sorts of classicized elements. Well, everything has a rank in that building. It, it is, it's very hierarchical from top to bottom, everything has its place. In addition to which there's a radiant control uh, over the city because it's placed at a, at a um, uh, center point in the city. And, and so uh, roads radiate out from that. This is kind of a, kind of a super Stalinist structure that uh, you know, tells you where you belong in society, what you should think, 
um, and, and uh, is, is, is really sort of an instrument of state control. Mm. So that to me is a, a bad building. Um, you know, it just I, from a philosophical point of view, I don't, I, you know, I'm a Democrat, I believe in liberating people and, and not telling them what to think. So down the road, on the way to the highway, Zaha Hadid did a very freeform building that you might say looks like a floating handkerchief. Um, and the ins inside the spaces um, are also, looks very levitated. You can't see a bolt that's securing anything. It's just, it's just kind of freedom itself in stone. It's actually not stone, but it's um, metaphorically stone. And um, when I, the first time I visited the, I was given a minder from the authoritarian government and he still has a mentality that um, it comes out of the first building. So he's, as we're walking through it, he's telling me what to think. And it's, it's so uh, contradictory to the actual experience of the building, which is really a building you want to swim through on your own path and poke around. You can never see a terminal point because it's always hidden out of sight. There's no end to it. There's an, an infinity through which you walk. It's just really mesmerizing. And so um, I was courteous. I was a guest. And I said, I thanked him for it. And can we walk through the same building again? And let me just, just Drift. experience it in long terms. And so he he shut up. He was he was courteous, and and I walked through it, and and I had an entirely different experience. But it was not directed either by him, but more importantly, it was not directed by the building. The building sort of suggested the experience I would have. Um, hmm. So yeah, that's there's a philosophical basis uh, to what I think a good building should do. Notwithstanding, um, you know, there's some buildings that, uh, for example, there's a, a, a very quite brilliant, um, huge um, uh, uh, airport terminal in Bom not Bombay, in uh, is it Calcutta? No, it's in Delhi. I think it's Delhi, in India, done by SOM. And they were inspired by its perfectly sublime pavilions, garden pavilions in northern India. Um, and those are invariably symmetrical and, and somewhat predictable, but there's an ethereal aspect to it that, you know, brings it into a different realm altogether. So here's, these are buildings that are not um, open form. It's about closure because um, the corners are defined, the volumes are, are implied. Still, it's, it's just, you know, beautiful. You, you just, um, you, it gives you a different experience altogether. So mm -hmm. I'm not applying my own standards to that because those are not the standards that they designed by, but they did a really inspired job in many of these pavilions. And the SOM architects took that idea and they inflated it into a huge uh, structure. And I have to admire it. Um, it's it's uh, a little obvious because by the time you inflate something by, you know, 40, 40, a multiple of 40, um, yeah. uh, and it's symmetrical, then it becomes a little monotonous, but, mm. but still is better than um, uh, what might have been done 40 or 50 years ago, just out of steel. This is, um, anyway, they, they, they really, and they also made it indigenous. So it was not a colonial imposition on India, but they derived a language from India. So it had things going for it. Um, uh, and um, 
it, it was not as, as brilliant as Zaha's invention in Baku because it's highly derivative, um, but it was derivative with a sensibility that gave it um, uh, a quality that I admire. I don't know if I'm answering your question, but. Yeah, no, I, I, I think I understand what you're saying. And it, and it sounds like you have a, a building type that fits your more psychological trait of, of openness towards reality that when you experience it and it, and it allows you to wander and, and, and have a unique experience, no matter who you are in that building for your personality type, that's a very immersive experience of being encouraged to try this, try that, go here, see that it's not dictated to you from an outside source of, of knowing like you would in say a very regimented classical building with a, you know, a, a grid layout, blah, blah, blah. But that at the same time, uh, there's apparently a need and sometimes an ability to do those buildings in a beautiful way that even is inviting and pleasant for those who have a more open disposition to their surroundings. Is that a, a summary? Yes, that's, 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 that's quite true. The, um, I, in the first category, I would say that I try to avoid systems of control and uh -huh. systems of control might, might be a grid or a perspective. It might be geometry, it might be Euclid, or it could be um, a uh, air conditioning system that seals off an entire building that you can't open the window in it. There are lots mm. of systems of control, uh, um, uh, you know, basically authoritarian structures. Um, and, um, what else did I want to say about that? I was going to lead somewhere else. Um, we have our open disposition buildings and our more conscientious disposition yeah. buildings. <laughs> yes. So, but what I what I find um, really uninteresting of building is is when it's so obvious that there's nothing to discover that you understand the layout from the very beginning, you understand the detailing. You can have a mystifying building that's uh, Euclidean or in a box, um, mm -hmm. uh, and but if it doesn't tell you everything uh, in one shot, then then I think that um, it has a, a potential of being immersive. Mm -hmm. That you, you your curiosity leads you through the building, you wonder what's happening, it doesn't tell you what it's doing uh it's not overly explicit it's um it uh, again uh connects with you it connects through your imagination basically hmm. so let me see if i can uh share an idea and make any sense of it so this is an infant idea that i don't know that i'll be able to articulate clearly and i may just confuse you but you're a critic so you'll be able to somewhat like tell me where i'm going off the rails maybe but um uh, yeah as a personality type i have a much more open disposition if i have a normal or a consistent job or if i have a consistent paycheck or if anything in my life is too repetitive or not surprising or dependable to some degree i i become bored i become uh, claustrophobic feeling or you name it. I'm always looking for surprises and changes and, and new experiences in my life. And it sounds like you have the same desire for when you're interacting with a building, that it's something that you 
don't necessarily know the entirety of the building from the facade and know that, you know, X, Y, Z, you come in, you go there and it's dictated and it's, you know, but at the same time, I know there's people that uh, are of more of a disposition that want to know their, their boundaries and expectations in certain areas of their life right from the start so they don't have to process those experiences at a higher level. And generally, more conscientious people I have found, and this is my own idea, that when they interact with the space, they like a more regimented expectation that's not going to surprise them, that they don't have to work through figuring out. I think sometimes you go into a building and you, you want to get to your dentist's office and you don't really want a, um, a, you know, an experience. You just want to get there. Mm -hmm. And um, so, uh, so maybe you don't want a prom promenade. You just want to get from A to B um, uh, you know, uh, from the entrance. That doesn't mean the building can't be interesting. You see things peripherally. Um, and um, uh, so you could experience things in a subliminal way, but e even if you're if you're um, uh, being eaten about it. So I, I don't with efficiency. Uh, I have to say that you know these buildings have to work, um, and I, I'm not a functionalist to, to the extent that functionalism to me is not necessarily the be all and end all of the building. I think that we live in have lived through decades of, uh, of an impoverished environment because functionalism alone um, has determined how buildings are built and how they behave and how they're designed. Hmm. There has to be more than that. You know, the, the book, is, functionalism is itself a, 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 an ordering system that um, can be too, that can be quite crushing. However, if it's functional and poetic um, and intriguing and uh, open, uh, uh, and emotional, then, then you have a, you start having a richer environment. Hmm. Okay. That helps me understand that a bit more. Um, so, so, then, so you, so that, the, so there are multiple ways of, of experiencing it. You can therefore experience it emotionally or through your curiosity or as discovery or, uh, as efficiency. Mm -hmm. For, for me, uh, let's see the, is it MoMA? the Museum of Contemporary Art in Boston. Have you been to that building on the south side of Boston I, there? Yes, yeah. I have. Long, quite a long time ago when it opened. I was there. For yeah. But the, the way that you explained the building, the Zaha Hadid building that you experienced with the, the government appointed guide, um, I, I remember going through that building and feeling that I don't know where I'm supposed to go here next. And I was expecting a building type to tell me that. But if I knew ahead of time that this building was designed like, and this was, you know, probably 15 years ago. And uh, it, it was an interesting experience that now that I know that, and I've heard you say that, I, I'd like to go back and just simply let myself wander and see how that building actually handles me. I think that would be an interesting experience now. Well, it's an interesting comparison because um, in, in Zaha's building, um, there are, is an unfolding promenade 
uh, at the ICA, uh, particularly on the ground floor, it's not very inflected. Um, I don't. Uh, I think it's it's so open that it doesn't have much suggestion to it. Mm -hmm. um, so so um, I, I wouldn't say that it. I was intrigued. It, the building intrigued me through the whole thing. It, however, there were moments of discovery, which and revelation. For example, in the auditorium, it, it faces out to the water, um, so you discover the bay. Um, the scale of the building is scaled to the the ocean. Uh, it's really big scale there on the waterfront. Um, there's a, as I recall, there's a um, surprise in the auditorium that's where the geometry contradicts itself. So it's you don't know which is up or not. Anyway, so it, uh, so that's an, um, a building that's kind of conceptual, um, uh, and and there's an intrigue to it. This particularly visual, it's very cerebral. They're they're really conceptual artists uh, rather than kind of experiential experiential art artists. You don't look at the building to get it. You you kind of think of it uh, and get it. Is a different way of. It's a different level. Altogether, yeah. um, it's, uh, uh, they were very influenced by Marcel Duchamp, the the, the artist who um, who believed that art had become too retinal um, and not cerebral enough, and so he um, uh, textualized uh, his art, um, frequently writing text. So there's a narrative, and so you could say that this is a this is a building with a kind of a textual narrative that's conceptual. Um, mm -hmm. It's uh, so I, I think it's quite valid and. Um, it's it's a different form of and experience is multiple and conceptual experience is another form of experience. Yeah, the, so, there's um, definitely said, a challenge to that building for me in its experience. Yeah, that said, the um, you could say uh, I never wrote about the building, but I know that I thought it that um, uh, uh, Liz Diller and Rick video make a point of not developing a vocabulary. Um, and so that's interesting insofar as all their buildings are different than each other, but it's not so great because when you, uh, that means they don't build on what they already learned on the, on the last project, particularly. Um, uh, Frank Gehry is um, uh, somebody who uh, uh, kind of masticates forms over a period of buildings. And so he learns through the vocabulary that he develops. That's also true of Zaha Hadid. Um, uh, so I think that had they been building on previous discoveries, it might have been a, a, a better building. Um, I, I like the building, but I think that it, it um, is not as seasoned as, as it might have been um, had they not uh, had they uh, developed a vocabulary that was quite promising. Um, mm. You know, somebody like Richard Meyer um, invented vocabulary very early and he never evolved it. So mm. uh, fortunately it was a very rich vocabulary, but by the end he was um, really repeating himself. And um, so it, 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 his career is eventually disappointing because he didn't uh, discover new paths. He just reiterated what they already knew. Hmm. Um I would like to I would like to delve into a little bit of of your understanding of of the the depth of the creative process like as much as you've thought about it how the creative process actually works from uh, a a need or desire for some 
creative thing or work of art or project, architectural project, um, anything. The creative process from beginning to acceptance or rejection. Do you, do you have a formative picture of that in your mind or an emotional process that you can explain through the entirety of that and the different parts of uh, psychology and society that work together in both creation and then uh, accepting of that creation into societal norms? Architecture is is a um, a field with a process that is different than um, the more individualized uh, creative process of, of say writing. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, uh, let's take a firm that's medium size or maybe even large, um, and that so you have a firm that has um, a lot of people, maybe a couple hundred people, and and you have a number of projects coming in, um, and let's say it's headed by one person. It could be Frank Gehry or Zaha Hadid. Um, the the um, what's what's frequently the case is that um, it's collaborative. Actually, it's not individual. It's not not a genius sitting down at at a, at a table. It might be um, uh, uh, the head of a firm that sketches um, a general idea, or it could be that um, in a writing room in a in a political comedy or a late night, late night show that you have eight or ten people sitting around a table and they, they start um talking about they kick around some jokes and and the 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 skit develops out of this, this creative um um uh collaboration so in architecture the um uh Collaboration is hugely important because even if an architect establishes the basic party, which would be, be the basic design, um, it then goes to somebody else or, or a group of people who are going to um, uh, develop it, and um, uh, and it's incumbent on the 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 architect hiring other people to hire the best staffs possible because their contributions are really additive and hugely important in the in the whole thing so you have um compounded creative process uh is it's, it's compounded by the, a number of voices who are contributing now that that process is very different from um a writer uh, obviously and that's kind of more much more individual it's uh you know a single mind under pool of light um and um it's interesting to get into the flow because you might start with a sentence, or you might block the whole thing out in 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 a in a uh, in, a, uh, <laughs> in an, uh, an outline. There's some uh, I can. There's one one um, colorist who told me that the way she develops color is, is to start with a one color, and she wants to go to. A final color so she she tries to figure out how to get from orange to purple and she might go through green and uh, so the same thing is true of some writers you might know what the ending is you know might know what the beginning is as you plot out the so uh, in between so um 
I think the process of, very, is just, of discovery is hugely important. And there are two levels of discovery. One is the thought discovery of uh, if you're getting from A to Z, uh, what the M is going to be and what, what the N is going to be you know, in, in that, uh, if it's a linear narrative. Um, but there's also the discovery of words in the meantime which uh, are the art of writing. I don't really think that you can be an interesting creative writer unless you're creative with words. Um, uh, and uh, I had um, worked for Harold Bloom at Yale who um, uh, wrote, um, he was a very prolific writer and he just wrote whatever um, he, had, he was very logical and he knew what he wanted to say, but there was no discovery in what he was writing. He just wrote it flat out and he didn't, he didn't um, uh, recapitulate. If you've looked at uh, uh, James Joyce's manuscripts, those are kind of uh, really chaotic manuscripts where he's crossing out and he's doing arrows here and there. It's, it's as though he's writing and rewriting and overwriting it. So that's a whole different process. But I think I would say that discovery is the most important thing in, in um, the creative process of you don't know where you're going to go or how are you going to say it. Um, mm -hmm. That's true of a design as well that, that you um, if you if you know where you're going to go, then there's really it's not creative at all. It's you're, you're just um, uh, you're, you're just executing a design mm -hmm. that has this DNA all set, set out for you. So discovery is hugely important. That's also the pleasure of designing uh, or writing that um, you, um, uh, these little uh, kind of exclamation points of discovery um, are very rewarding. That's the pleasure in it. Right. And if you're not taking some form of pleasure, then it's probably not going to be pleasurable for the reader or the experience in a building. Hmm. I found the most insight I have had in the things that I've attempted to write about, the most progress and insight I have come while I'm extremely emotional. If I can, uh, if I can allow that emotion to interact with, an, with my articulate mind, if I can just almost separate the two and let the articulate mind listen to the emotions. Um, emotions in architecture are curious. Um, I think that um, you, you know you're dealing with space and form, and buildings certainly can be emotional. Uh, forms and spaces can be emotional, um, but um, I find that most architects are um, interested in, in the visual aspect of a building. And mm -hmm. so if it looks cool or inventive or unexpected, um, those are emotions, but of a type that's different than the 19th century idea of emotionalism being, um, you know, stormy weather and you know, the stormy temperament or um, is it, is it, is a um, probably a cooler emotion, it's still emotional. Um, when I write, uh, uh, I suppose I like wit, I like delight. That's an emotional thing, but I'm not necessarily looking to cry. Um, and um, although when I see a movie that has a strong 
um, emotional content, uh, you know, I'm perfectly prepared to cry, cry a great deal at movies. Um, it, uh, it depends. I don't, it depends on what you mean by emotion, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, well, a lot of the time I'm working through things, writing, that usually have to do uh, with belief. And so there's, there's a lot entangled up in belief that then you have to process and work through. So that's probably why I'm, I'm getting further in those instances. If I allow the emotions that are probably very much, uh, I probably protect myself from those with some of the things I predispose the direction that my mind should go in questioning some of the things that bring me emotional comfort, I'd imagine. So, uh, so uh, are, are you talking philosophical belief or religious belief or, uh, they're one in the same for me and to a, to a large degree, I don't know how to quite separate them at this point personally. Mm -hmm. And, and in the both creative writing and, and working through process, I find that if I can allow myself to be emotional while thinking that the two together sharpen each other sure that's a it's an interesting layering that's going on yeah and i i don't i don't know how to control it but if i <laughs> listen to music that is emotional for me either in a positive or melancholy or any way that that ability to let those emotions uh flow and encourage them to flow within me while being highly articulate with my mind, that's when the combination of those two produces insight for me. Uh, yeah, I, then we have, you and I then have different writing experiences. I, I don't um, try to uh, infuse my emotions in the writing. The, the, the emotions come out of the writing. They're, you know, mm. the, a pleasure, the, the pleasure of a thought or, or the gratification of something's well articulated. Um, uh, I'm, I'm not, I'm, you know, I'm not writing biographical stuff, um, and I'm not um, writing fiction. Um, uh, I have done a number of profiles recently for the New York Times, and as soon as I, yeah, this is a huge difference then between in. in uh, you know, I'm writing about things normally. And what I found in these profiles that I've done is very liberative because I can deal with people who have had emotional lives and whose biographies are, have trajectories that are not always happy or might, might be happy. And, um, and at that point, um, I can, um, as a, uh, by empathy, I can, I can inject an emotion that might correspond to their emotion. So, so mm. by writing about people, um, I, um, uh, I, I find that I, the, the notion of emotion is more salient. Uh, uh, when I was an undergraduate, um, you know, when I was a high school student, I was a very happy kid and I was a student body president and I liked people. I was very chatty and all that. For some reason, when I went to Yale, I became really introverted. Um, I, left California and I was in the East Coast context. Um, I didn't have many 
Gibbons to bring me out. Uh, mm -hmm. So I became uh, uh, quite self-isolated. I wasn't unhappy, but I didn't connect to a lot of other people or a lot of different activities. So, uh, and I was an English major and that interviewed me all the more so that by the time mm. I was a, uh, it was compounded by the, the, the young ladies I went out with and particularly one in particular with whom I fell quite in love and she turned out to be um, a, a quite sad woman who eventually committed suicide. Um, mm. So, so uh, by the time I finished high uh, college, I was um, I was so introverted that I couldn't play a game of charades uh, because it was I was shy and and complete opposite from the student body president I had been in high school mm -hmm. um, and um, uh, in California I played tennis and basketball I didn't do any sports and there was nothing to so I thought you know this has got to stop um, uh, I am no longer. Uh, happy with myself, and and I had always been look, interested in looking at architecture. Um, and my father had been a contractor, and and so I had a certain background in it, in building. And I thought, well, even if I focus on objects that are outside of myself, maybe I can lift myself out of myself. Well, it turned out to work. Uh, and uh, and so uh, I made a career out of architecture and writing about architecture. So. I no longer um, am as inverted, not nearly as introverted as I was. I'm somewhat introverted, but I'm more extroverted now. Um, and and uh, so by by objectifying the subjects I think about, rather than subjectifying it, um, the, the, this uh, this meant that that emotional um, um, part of my life was better controlled. Let's say I had lost control. Hmm. Interesting. That's very interesting. So the it, it it also seems to me that the creative process of that part of discovery is one of objectifying <clears throat> objectifying your subjective experience to be able to pass on to others. Is that a fair way of saying that, in your opinion? Well, it's not objectifying the subjective. I, I because I, I think that the, both the experience, the experience is simultaneously subjective and objective. Mm -hmm. uh, so I wouldn't say that one is applied to the other. I would say they merge at the same time and they're intertwined, and and they prod each other. Right, but the 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 creation that comes out of that creative process, be it writing, architecture, art, music is in some form an objectification, a new objectification from someone's experience. That, that's what I'm trying to say. Is that, does that ring true to you at all or no? Sure, yeah, I think that's fair. I think it evolves out of that experience. Okay, all right. Um, so in-, in I, I, could, I could say though too that um, the, the the end result can be simultaneously subjective and objective. So you're you could say that it's a subjectification of the experience, the initial experience, as well as the object objectification. Mm -hmm. Except that you're saying that the product itself is an object. It's mm -hmm. a piece of writing or building. Right. It 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 does become 
something that is of further utility that came out of the chaotic abstract into some form of further utility that is closer to an objectification that even though art is, you know, uh, a subjective interpretation most of the time, it is somewhat of a further objectification of someone's experience that then someone else has to in some way subjectify, interact with it and come away with their own experience. But they have created an objectified thing out of their subjective experience, it seems. Mm -hmm. I think that's fair. So um, there's, there's an interesting, to me, what, what seems like a, maybe a paradox, I'm not sure how to, how to hold this and think about it, but when you come to uh, giving a critique of something that is deconstructive, avant-garde, how does one, uh, how does one critique something like that? Because it's, if something is deconstructive and avant-garde by definition, I, if I'm understanding everything correctly, that thing is uh, created as a reaction of breaking away and, and intentionally doing something that is not of the established order, uh, doing something new. And so how do you judge that? Uh, as something that you're creating a critique of it that you can pass on in written form to someone else to help them form an opinion on that thing, which is deconstructive and avant-garde, that is still this sub subjective interpretation. It can only be a subjective interpretation that the critic is creating around that thing because it is not of an established form that you can then reference like the, the guide to classical architecture and say, well, this isn't a good piece of classical architecture because of X, Y, Z. How do you, how do you critique something that is deconstructive and avant-garde? Well, um, it, it is not raw chaos, although it might be inspired by raw chaos. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, as we know from James Glick's book and all the research that went in by a lot, a lot of other science, the, the chaos dishes, um, an order uh, to chaos um, that's not really chaotic in, in the sense that we usually mean. If it's ordered, if the chaos is ordered, then it's not completely chaotic and, mm -hmm. and, um, and, and it's certainly not random. Um, uh, when I reviewed the Frank Gehry's uh, Guggenheim Bilbao, um, uh, I realized that the building had greater affinities with the, the mountains that surround the city of Bilbao and, and the cloudscape and even the, the river in front um, than it did, with, which is very liquid and flowing, and uh, um, uh, than it did with the architecture in the surroundings. So that um uh basically the the what we are calling deconstructed architecture um uh uh and which might have at the group of has been inspired by chaos science um is um uh, immersive 
uh, is, is nonlinear, basically. So, so it doesn't mean that the nonlinear nonlinearity makes it um, uh, random uh, or arbitrary. Um, it, it takes a huge amount of skill. I do. I once did an apartment in New York uh, renovation, and this was in '88, '89, um, and um, I was. I, had just recently gotten involved in this this movement and and I found that um, this apartment wanted two languages it, it wanted a deconstructivist language but it also wanted the classical language because it was one of the grand grand buildings on Gramercy Gramercy Park it was duplex and it had owned been owned by um, a family that uh, uh, invented shorthand uh, shorthand writing um, and it'd been the family for a long time. So there's molding all the way around and, and uh, it was, um, it, but it was stuffy. It was very uh, kind, of, kind of unpleasant. It hadn't been alive in d decades. Um, and so, but, but I wanted to respect the, the framework. And so I actually extended the moldings. Um, I redeployed them. And then I did, I injected a storm that went through the, throughout the whole thing, uh, it was all these floating floating planes uh, I had uh, I had to uh, show the plans to the building um, board uh, and and so I basically showed them alive by showing the, the, the basic layout which is all, all orthogonal but the real architecture occurred in mid-air where I had, um, where I had these floating planes that were going through the whole thing and piercing the floor it was widely published. It was published about, it was internationally published about eight or nine places. Um, but the, um, uh, the, my discovery was that it was so much easier to do the classical molding because everything had an order. It was just, um, it kind of wrote itself, if you were. And it was far more difficult to invent my um, apparently chaotic uh, storm because you're, you know, the angles are, all have to be determined and they have to work with each other they have to work functionally and so on um so um uh it's not as though this kind of architecture is at all easy and it sometimes fails you have to be very good at it um mm. and um uh, uh and this you know, it's not for everybody and some people just frankly don't like it when i go to a, a barber and if, let's say i have a new barber i i always tell him just don't make me look like a republican <laughs> and uh, by that, I mean, uh, I don't want every hair in place. I don't want to tell him what to do. I just want a certain wildness to it uh, that, that, you know, that, um, and, um, uh, and uh, so wild and certain wildness, a controlled wildness is, is something I look for because it, it means that you um, uh, simply are freer, you're more reactive, you're just more open to the world. Um, mm -hmm. and, and you don't want to control things. You want to know everything down. So you're, you have a very uh, psychologically open disposition in many ways, like myself, I believe, from, from you know, what little conversation we've had. Um, what's your understanding and allowance for the, the polar opposite of you? That, that, you know, there's those people who would sit down at the barber and say, make it short on the sides, this on the top, curling here, make, don't make me look like a Democrat, right? Like, what, what is the, what do you give 
to that um, that disposition, that different disposition. Like when people say you shouldn't change a person, to me, that's what's being said. You shouldn't, someone's born conservative or conscientious in, in general, or they're born open in general. And to try and put, you know, someone like yourself or like me into a regimented system where you know what's coming for the next however long and you can expect things, it's very disheartening and uncomfortable and constraining. But to take that conscientious person and put them in that same environment, they can thrive because they know what to expect and they can get on with the organization and the management and the, you know, the maintenance of all the things that do give us a place to recuperate and, and regain our energy to go back out into the chaos. How do you, how do you relate to that other half of the uh, dispersion of our, if that's the right word, uh, disbursement of our psychological base, psychological traits? Well, there are, um, it depends on whether the, uh, somebody who's highly self-controlled is also um, controlling so that mm. uh, it's one thing to be self-controlled. The other thing is to be authoritarian. Now, right. the, the guy, the minder who walked me through the, the building in Baku um, was, uh, you, know, I, you know, I was polite and, and I endured the 45 minutes of what I was told what to think. Um, right. And it, but he, he didn't acknowledge who I was and what my feelings might be and what my thoughts would be. He didn't let me, he, you know, had he just served me for information uh, that might've been interesting or not, like, you know, the number of tons of steel and, and the, how the, the um, space frame was fabricated. And, and uh, you know, that might've been of some interest in because I didn't know that you can always absorb information, but he was basically telling me how to experience the building. That building itself um, was built in a, um, a fairly authoritarian culture because the the guy who runs the country after whom the building is named um is an autocrat and, mm. and uh what hadid was doing basically was building a subversive building that showed another way of thinking and being and so maybe this minder if he goes through the building um long enough might relax his his um speech to experience open his eyes and actually experience it so the building might be seditious it might actually open him, uh, his, his thoughts and stuff up to other other ways of, of thinking um i saw ron DeSantis um uh, approach a, a group of about eight or ten minority kids they were very young men maybe 18 to 20 or maybe 16 to 19. Um, uh, is this is the were, governor of florida right is that right? That's right. Okay. So yes, that's right. So so each of these kids, all of the minorities, had masks on, and and uh, DeSantis, of course, his political position is is freedom. You're not supposed to wear masks. Uh, you're not supposed to be told that you have to wear a mask. So he gets up on the stage, and he tells them to take. He takes tells them all to take off their masks. So here's a guy who's believing, whose political stand is you should 
be able to choose whether or not to wear, wear masks and he's telling them what to do. And when he tells them that, he doesn't engage them. He doesn't tell, he doesn't say, well, how are you? What high school do you go to? And what are mm. you, he doesn't engage them. They're just bad, they're wallpaper for his speech. And he wants the, the politically correct wallpaper so that they can't do the mass. This is an authoritarian. Um, mm. And had, had Obama gone up to the stage with the same guys, he, Obama would have made a connection. He would have said, you know, hi, uh, you know, what's your name? Um, what you're going to college or, you know, what are your prospects or, you know, he would have engaged them in some, he would have personalized it. So DeSantis was just there to tell them what to do. I have no patience for that at all. And he wants to run a government that way. He wants to be president of the United States. He wants to dictate uh, the way we should be. This is not what I would consider democratic. So, so if, if he is, um, he has a Republican haircut. Oh, he went to the same, he went to the same schools I went to, Yale and Harvard. Um, but uh, we came out with entirely different um, points of view. I went to architecture school. He went into law, which can be controlling uh, if, mm -hmm. if you depend on your application of it. So it's a different mentality. I think he has an Italian background. I have an Italian background as well. So there's certain parallels, but we're entirely different personality types. He hates my personality type. I hate his personality type. And I hate it because... He tries to control other people to tell them what to think. He, he's a minder. He's, he's a social minder. Now, if he had if he had gotten up in that situation and said, each one of you is free to not wear those masks if you want or to wear them, it's your choice. And that's what I stand for. To me, that's the that's the that's the middle of the road sentiment to be able to say, uh, I don't know how I could relate that to your guide at the Zaha Hadid building, but if your guide had simply told you the information and let you make up your own decision, that would not have been authoritarian. So if if that governor had DeSantis had been able to get up there and say, the information in my interpretation says this, which then makes me want to form laws to say, you get to make up your own mind on this and determine your own path forward and you get to discover that that's less authoritarian in it. It seems like yeah. It, it, there's that. Yes. But initially he has to treat them as human beings. He has to right. engage them. He, they're not mm. props. So right. he, they were for him props. They were wallpaper. So the very, the premise of it was, was, um, you know, I'm going to use these people. You know, that's not a good thing. And then, and then, okay, so let's say he did um, engage them by acknowledging the, the, the fact that they have their own minds and, and, uh, and said, oh, this is kind of funny because um, I, I, I'm not wearing the mask and you're all wearing masks. And, and um, I think that, you know, he, he might have actually caught the moment. That would be somewhat artful. It would be mm -hmm. um, reacting to a situation, um, kind of improvising, being alive. But he came with an agenda that was very rigid. And you know, mm -hmm. that's, you know, that's Stalin, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's a, it's a expression that is one of like almost killing life when you say, oh, that looks like Soviet era architecture. It's just, heavy and and i don't know the the you can always i can there's there's some
project buildings to the north of New York City every time I go in that to me just reek of authoritarian Soviet era architecture that just feels controlled and oppressive. And that, that kind of thing, I just, I don't get any comfort. Although when I get extremely overwhelmed, I, I find myself daydreaming what it would be like to actually be in the military to where I didn't have to think about any possibilities. And I only could just relax and be and do what I'm told. And I know as soon as I was in that situation, I'd get really itchy really fast. But at those times when I'm exhausted from all the options, at some point that does also comfort me, which is odd. I don't know how to hold that really, but. Yeah, no, I think that there there's some personality types that um, want to surrender to be told what to do. The um, uh, A friend of mine has a sister who's, it's a Jewish family, and but it was kind of very um, reformed Judaism. But mm-hmm. one sister who went to, she was apparently the very bright one in the family, uh, uh, national merit scholar, and she went to Yale and Yale and the drama school, and and uh, she was kind of the the, the bright light. Um, for some reason, um, she gave all that up, and she married a Hasidic Jew. Uh, uh, which uh, is means that her all the liberalism of her background. Her father was the mayor of Miami, and um, and she had every advantage. She liked mm-hmm. being told what to do. She just um, it, it was a very confined um, uh, situation, and and um, uh, and if you surrender to that, then you you know I suppose there's a great comfort in knowing that you belong to a system that is in some way taking care of you. You don't have to take any initiative because the um, uh, initiative need not apply. Mm-hmm. And um, I think you use the word, I had used the word wildness or wild and you use the word life. And I, I suppose it all, all boils down to finding the life in a manuscript, finding the life in the building, giving that life to the user, to the reader, to the person experiencing it. So. So the, the you know uh, you know life rather than nailing things down, um, I, I mean that's what I strive for in my work, um, and and it's what I look for in other work. Hmm. So to round this out, to not take all of your day, <laughs> uh, what would you say are the the primary differences or psychological traits that would make for a a really great architect? compared to a really great critic what are the what are the different aspects of the person that cause that um that means of making a livelihood and approaching these different you know things in in that different the same thing essentially in those different manners in those different processes what what distinguishes distinguishes that and is it something that if you're a great critic you're automatically a great architect and if you're a great architect you're automatically a great critic does that line up and and what are the tendencies or personality traits or talents that that distinguish those well i i think openness would be um uh sort of mental emotional openness would be uh, critical for both critic and for uh, architect the different the big difference is 
<clears throat> where one's talent slide, you, you can be um, very open-minded, creative, and et cetera, but not have a good visual or spatial instinct. So there's uh, some people who just don't have that particular talent. And uh, conversely, somebody with those talents might not have a verbal talent. Um, and um, so there is germane to each endeavor um, kind of a, uh, uh, a skill set uh, that is not necessarily transportable. It's not, you know, if you, if you, uh, they, they just might, and there's some people who are good in both, you know, whose left and right hemispheres um, are talk to each other uh, with great frequency and, and they're collaborative and so they can be both, but being verbal and visual um, are not necessarily coincident. But I think in terms of temperament, uh, there is, there's a great overlap in terms of, you know, curiosity and will, uh, uh, willingness to explore, to invent, to to acknowledge, to enjoy not knowing, and to um, enjoy the kind of the the um, the uh, path to knowing or the path to inventing. Uh, you know, explorers, explorers in their medium. Well, Joseph, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, field and, and help me become slightly less ignorant and in all these areas. <laughs> I, I really appreciate uh, the opportunity to pick your brain. Um, and I, I really appreciate the work you've put into this book. I have not made it through the entire book yet uh, or even come close because it's 800 and some pages, is it? <laughs> well, it, it turns it turns out you can read it in sections. You can dip into yeah. it and, and leave it, and then come back to it because it's um, I did. It's not like a, a narrative with a, you know from A to Z. Um, uh, I wrote it as a collage of themes, hmm. um, and so you can dip into it. And, and uh, there are a lot of sections that are kind of self um, uh, self sufficient. Let's say, yeah. And I, I am I am really enjoying having this at home for the moments that are quiet where I get to actually uh, digest this kind of thing. And I would recommend this book to anyone, Architecture Unbound, A Century of the Disruptive Avant-Garde by Joseph jo Giovannini. Um, really great uh, reference for, I think, kind of understanding uh, architecture outside of the rigid mindset that I have so often found myself interacting with. Because as, you, as you've said, I think architecture that is disruptive and avant-garde is much more difficult and much more likely to fail. But when it's done right, it's received and it, and it changes the fabric going forward, in my opinion. And it's much harder, but when it's done successfully, it it changes the future. And uh, and I I really appreciate the, the work of this. And uh, thanks for doing it. Thanks for taking the time to uh, talk with me today. Well, it's clear that you have an open mind and an open heart. So that's a that's a huge advantage going forward. It's the beginning of the end of absolute ignorance for me. So, right? I can, okay. <laughs> I can admit I don't know a lot of stuff and I've gotten a lot of stuff wrong. So it's a, it's a great starting point. So. Uh, 
Okay, well, lovely meeting you, if only over the uh, uh, Zoom. Yes, yes. Thank you so much, and uh, let's let's do this again in a while when you put out another uh, masterwork here. Good course. Thank okay. you so much. No, thank you very much for your time. <laughs>